Uh, Father God, we uh, thank you for your servant Luke and for this wonderful account of the spread of the gospel of Jesus into the broader world of his day. And uh, we ask that as we consider this ancient world and how much of it uh, resonates with our modern society, we ask that you would move our hearts and minds to see not only how wonderful the gospel of Jesus is, but how uh, very much it's needed in our world too. Amen. Well, Acts 19 finds Paul back in Ephesus. Uh, in fact, he kept a promise that he'd made, we read in uh, Acts 18 verse 21. He said to them he would come back and here he was back in Ephesus. However, uh, while Paul had arrived in Ephesus, it's important that uh, we remember that he's actually not the main character in this story. Uh, he's not the central character in the story that unfolded over the next three or so years that he was there. Luke wrote in uh, the first seven verses that almost as Paul arrived in town, so he and a number of locals experienced a sort of mini Pentecost, uh, for lack of a better way to describe the events in those verses. And I think what was going on here is that even as Luke 19 begins, uh, Luke was yet again making sure that we, his readers, understood that he wasn't just telling a travel story. Uh, what we have here is a record of the progress of the gospel of Jesus, spreading out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And just as, been, as had been the case on the day of Pentecost, so Luke begins this account by uh, telling us, showing us that the Lord Jesus by his spirit was still at work and he was at work to change lives and empower his people as his witnesses in this world. And so as I said a moment ago, we're actually reminded it's not Paul that's at the centre of this story, it's the Lord Jesus and his gospel. You see, by his spirit, he was at work in and through Paul in a way that was to impact that ancient city and much of the country around it in quite extraordinary ways. And the mission of Jesus, of course, is exactly what we see Paul get on with in verses 8 through 10. Uh, the pattern is one we're familiar with from reading through Acts. Um, Paul began his ministry by going to the Jews first. We see that he went to the synagogue and he spoke boldly there for three months. Uh, unfortunately, that time didn't last. His teaching was opposed. And then, so Paul took those who'd become believers and he moved off to a Gentile location, the lecture hall of one Tyrannus. And here he worked for another two years. And by the end of that time, uh, Luke tells us that his ministry had become incredibly extensive. So in verse 10, Luke wrote that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province, in the province, I should say, of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. That's a big statement if you look at a map. Now, of course, the, the comparisons today are somewhat limited, uh, despite there being some similarities. A synagogue was not a Christian church. And uh, we don't really have anything in our society quite like the lecture hall of Tyrannus. 
However, what Paul did, or the shape of his ministry, I think is instructive to us. So, for example, in Acts 19, verse 8, we read that Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. I think Paul chose to go somewhere that he expected at least a somewhat sympathetic hearing. He had a point of contact with these people. Uh, and he went somewhere where he thought there might be a, he might be able to crack open the door, as it were. But I find it interesting the way Luke describes Paul here. He says that he was bold. Uh, he didn't talk about the weather over morning tea. Uh, he literally argued and persuaded. And after he moved, in verse 9, we read that Paul had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Literally, he had a dialogue with those who were there. And I find both what he did and the context fascinating as well. Um, Tyrannus literally means terrible. And I wonder how a, a, a teacher or a lecturer, whatever this guy was, a uh, pedagogue, how, how did he end up with a name like Tyrannus? And the way these things would have worked is that the lecture hall, Tyrannus himself or his staff would have used the lecture hall in the cooler parts of the day. Paul wouldn't have got this till the hot part of the day when most of the city was shut down. And yet he went there every day. Um, the content of what Paul's teaching uh, of, of Paul's teaching is recorded for us as being the kingdom of God in verse eight, and the word of the Lord, verse ten. He reasoned, he argued, he persuaded. Uh, did you notice that Paul didn't hold an evangelism week? Didn't put a banner up and say, "This week the apostle Paul is on stage talking about this great news." He didn't do that. He went there every day. It wasn't even an evangelism month. It wasn't a one-off effort. He went at it for weeks and months and years. And he was there every day. Now, we know, he cleared the we, we know he shared the gospel of Jesus with these listeners. But I think there's even more to it than that. I think he engaged them in ways that they would have been familiar with. The idea of him dialoguing with them. Uh, I think perhaps it's uh, worth noticing how patient he was and how persistent he was. He didn't give up. He was there every day. And even that, I don't think, is all there was to it. Uh, by the time Luke moved to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, he already had made disciples and he took them with him. And he'd made more than disciples too. Uh, he'd made friends. In fact, friends in high places. Officials of the province, Luke calls them, the Asiarchs. Uh, perhaps we think of them as senior public servants. Uh, Luke called them Paul's friends. They were amongst those who tried to persuade Paul not to go to the theatre during the riot that comes in the second part of uh, chapter 19 of Acts. And I find it interesting to just reflect on those things I've been saying about what Paul did and where he did them. 
Because we live in a world where we want to find out more, we do a course, or we find out more by going to a workshop. And I think those are good things. However, I think it's also easy to forget that though we need to be equipped to share the gospel of Jesus, you heard that lady talk about how good it was for her to have some confidence because she had something in the toolbox. We do have to bear in mind that being equipped is just the first step. It's only a start in the process. There's always going to be a place for courses and workshops, but that's actually not where the heavy lifting is done. If we are going to be serious about making disciples of Jesus, the heavy lifting is not done in the classroom. If we want to proclaim Jesus in our community and see disciples made, if we want to see our brothers and sisters grow in Jesus, then by far and away the most effective way for us to do that is for us to engage with people that we don't know who also don't know Jesus and to make friends of them that in the context of that friendship we might in fact be able to speak the word of God into their lives as our friends. And that's kind of scary because that means we need to take the risk of stepping out of our comfort zones. We do need to be like Paul in that we need to be bold. We need to get to know new people and we need to do that instead of simply hanging out with the people we're already comfortable with, which is where we often get to in our churches. We need to take the time and the effort to build new friendships, perhaps even being willing to let go of relationships that are precious to us for the sake of people who are precious to God. In the end, brothers and sisters, uh, it is true but very confronting to say that friendly churches don't grow. Okay, that's a scary thought, isn't it? Friendly churches don't grow. Churches where people make friends are the churches that grow. Uh, I like to explain it by thinking about Lego or Duplo. Uh, for those of us who are dads, one of the most perilous things to do was to walk across the lounge room in the dark in your bare feet, knowing that one of your children had been playing with Lego the day before. Don't forget, has anybody ever trod on a Lego block in the middle of the night with a bare foot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hurts, doesn't it? Our grandson's just starting on Duplo, heaven forbid. Um, the thing about Lego and Duplo, I feel like... It only has so many points of connection. And once the blocks of, a block has had all its points of connection taken up, you can't put any more on that. Maybe you can join around the outside, but you can't clip any more to that particular block. And I think um, what we have to think in terms of in our lives is making sure we have some points of connection. It's a pretty crude, crude way of illustrating it, but I actually think that's where we need to position our lives. For sure, have friends, but make sure we always have room for new friends. That's a challenge. Now, coming back to the text, so um, I'm at verse 11. Luke tells us that it was really clear that God was at work. Uh, quite apart from that mini Pentecost that the chapter began with God's powers manifest in Paul, verses 11 and 12. Uh, just as in Jesus' earthly ministry, 
there were signs and wonders, uh, signs that included restoration and release from bondage. So that sort of stuff happened through Paul's ministry too. The sick were cured. Those who were demon-possessed were freed. And in fact, if you look all the way back to the beginning of Luke's account, right back uh, in, uh, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus began his public ministry, he read from the prophet Isaiah and he said that that prophecy of the healing of the sick and the restoration of those who were lame, the freeing of captives, uh, he was there, in fact, to fulfil that ministry, uh, that fulfil that prophecy. And that was still going on. That's the picture that Luke is painting for us here. People came to repentance and sometimes that was costly repentance. The scrolls that we read of being burned uh, in verse 19, if I did the arithmetic right, those scrolls were probably worth somewhere around 5 million Australian dollars in today's currency and that kind of stuff. That's without any allowance for inflation. So enormously valuable. And it's not as simple as that either, was it? Because just as with Jesus' ministry, the opposite was also true. There was... Uh, there were signs and wonders and people being saved and all that kind of stuff. But there was also opposition and very significant opposition. We uh, didn't read about it, but Paul being pushed out of the synagogue was small potatoes compared with the citywide riot we read of in Acts 19 verses 23 through 41. Didn't read the story, but the short version is that a bloke named Demetrius, um, a silversmith, led this huge, huge crowd out into the local theatre uh, and by huge, I, I mean maybe as many as 10,000 people would have fitted in the theatre. So if the theatre was pretty full, there would have been quite a crowd. Uh, and they were all worked up. You, you can read it for yourself later. They were all worked up because, you see, as people came to Christ, they weren't patronising the local businesses that were connected into the cultic worship of the goddess Diana. And so the silversmiths and others had been stung in the hip pocket nerve because the gospel was taking their customers away from them. And they were looking for someone to blame for the turn down in their business, would be my guess. Uh, it's quite an extraordinary story, and yet by the time the chapter ends, the crowd had dispersed, they'd gone. Just ended with a whimper, really. The opposition was sidelined. The gospel of Jesus continued to spread. Now, on, uh, on weekends, I guess we're returning to this a bit now, but on weekends before social distancing became our new normal, uh, weekend sporting contests had lots of people participating and lots of people on the sidelines. Football, soccer, netball, uh, you name it, people are there. And uh, I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but at weekend sport, there's only two kinds of people in the end. There, there are those who are on the paddock, and uh, there are those who are spectators. And, and when we get back to our weekend sport, as we know it and love it, I, I'm guessing the same will still apply. There's going to be those who are watching, and there are going to be those who are in the game. I fear that following Jesus uh, sometimes, perhaps even too often, is more of a spectator sport. Uh, there are those who are out on the field with Jesus who are out in the paddock. But there's quite a few who end up in the stands, as it were. Thing is, we're one or the other. There's actually no other place 
we can be. So to reflect on the work of the gospel of Jesus in ancient Ephesus, uh, perhaps it's good to finish up by asking ourselves in our own context uh, whether we are on the paddock with Jesus or are we in the stands as spectators. You see, brothers and sisters, I think it's completely and utterly inadequate to think of our ministers uh, as the paid professionals, the ones who are in the game. Uh, It's so easy to think of them as the ones who have the job of looking after the needs uh, of our members and to do some evangelism when they get the chance. However, our Bibles know nothing of churches where those who are members of a church are spectators. Uh, The Bible knows nothing of churches where having a good event on a Sunday is all that church is about. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, uh, he actually uh, included this very subject. In in, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 17, Paul wrote this. He said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And here's the punchline. And then Paul says, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. See, Paul didn't say some of us had been appointed as ambassadors and the rest as a cheer squad. He didn't say that. He wrote that all of those who've been reconciled to Christ uh, have in turn been given both the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. All of us are appointed to the awesome role of ambassadors of Christ. Now, you know what? There's going to be opposition. The gospel is always opposed. Let's be realistic. The gospel is always opposed. And sometimes that opposition can be quite violent. And yet as amazing as that riot in Ephesus was, did you notice in the end how toothless it was? You see, if you were to go back and read those verses, you'd see there that Luke actually mocks the crowd. He wrote uh, in verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. And the account is bookended by the... It kind of includes the way the crowd was calling out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis, Diana. Uh, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I think Luke did that points that that's what the crowd were shouting at uh, at both ends of his account to make them look like a mob who all but literally stuck their fingers in their ears and decided to shout till something happened perhaps they figured the louder they shouted the more they were winning the argument and yet the gospel of Jesus was way more powerful Uh, And it is far more powerful than any opposition. And I think just has been the case since the very beginning 
it's always worth bearing in mind that while there is opposition, so too there is great repentance. Quite amazing repentance. The gospel of Jesus remains powerful to save. And just as it be, has had been the case on the day of Pentecost, so the Lord Jesus, by his spirit, is still at work today to change lives, to empower his people as his witnesses in this world. When it comes to ourselves, uh, we just need to be clear on the part we play. We need to ask ourselves, uh, are we on the paddock or are we just spectators. Amen.